Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. And we're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. Our call to worship this morning is entitled An Eye for Miracles by Diego Valeri. You who have an eye for miracles, regard the bud now appearing on the bare branch of the fragile young tree. It's a mere dot, a nothing, but already it's a flower, already a fruit, already its own death and resurrection. Many people wonder, without a creed, what holds Unitarian Universalists together? Well, many things. But one of the things that holds this congregation and guides its feet while it runs the race is the mission statement that you guys wrote, and then we wrote it on the wall and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. The anthem this morning was composed by Kaya Hartwood after a story about the cellist of Sarajevo. I'm going to tell the story of the cellist of Sarajevo in the sermon, but you need to know that he, after a mortar shell exploded, killing people right down the street from him, went into the hole that was left by that mortar shell and played his cello. to me in adagio while the mortars fly the listening dead that stood for bread this bow can heal this sky a prayer for peace a prayer for peace how can I play how can I play how can I play while they bomb
but how can they bomb? How can they bomb while I play? Speak to me in adagio while the mortars fly. The listening dead that stood for bread. This bow can heal this sky a prayer for peace a prayer for peace how can I play how can I play how can I play while they bomb How can they bomb? How can they bomb? While we play. Our reading this morning is a responsive reading entitled Rolling Away the Stone. In the tomb of the soul, we carry secret yearnings, pains, frustrations, Loneliness, fears, regrets, worries. In the tomb of the soul, we take refuge from the world and its heaviness. In the tomb of the soul, we wrap ourselves in the security of darkness. Sometimes this is a comfort. Sometimes it is an escape. Sometimes it prepares us for experience. Sometimes it insulates us from life. Sometimes this tomb life gives us time to feel the pain of the world and reach out to heal others 
Sometimes it numbs us and locks us up with our own concerns. In this season, where light and dark balance the day, we seek balance for ourselves. Grateful for the darkness that has nourished us, we push away the stone and invite the light to awaken us to the possibilities within us and among us, possibilities for new life in ourselves and in our world. This is the time in our service for centering when we breathe deeply together into that still place deep inside where we can speak to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath in and out. in any or all of these ways. We sink our roots down into the ground of compassion for ourselves, for one another. We ask for wisdom. We ask for rest. We ask for clarity as we enter into the silence together. Easter is about life and death, those little things, about renewal. There's a verse in the Hebrew scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy that says, This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Every day the choice between life and death is set before us, sometimes in great big flaming letters and sometimes in tiny little subtle ways. Today's story is about a cellist named Vidran Smelovic, who was the principal cellist for the opera of Sarajevo. He lived in an apartment in town. Sarajevo is the capital city of Bosnia-Herzegovina. This was during the time when the former Yugoslavia was breaking apart with ethnic and tensions. And um, the city of Sarajevo was surrounded by troops, and they were laying siege to the city. Nothing could go in or out. No one could go in or out. It started in May 1992, and it lasted almost four years. That's the longest siege of a capital city in modern warfare. No one knows of a siege, not Leningrad, not St. Petersburg. Nothing went on longer than that. So it was a daily struggle to find enough to eat and to find water that you could drink. And in this siege, almost 14,000 people died. Five and a half thousand of them were civilians. This was a terrible time. The, the photograph on the front of your bulletin just shows a bombed out modern city. Sarajevo was as modern as Houston. And uh, when siege was laid to it, there were skyscrapers burning from the mortar shells, glass-walled office buildings, 
reduced to smoking ruin. Nothing was normal. There were snipers hiding in the hills all around Sarajevo, our, our hills, and they were picking off people one by one. You just never knew when you were in danger. And then mortar shells were being lobbed into the main part of the city, and you never knew when one of those was coming either. Many people were just cowering in their basements with rubble over their heads. There was a bakery down the street from Vidran Smolovic who that was still open. And people would line up at this bakery to buy bread. And May 27th, 1992, the first month of the siege. People were lined up to buy bread, and a mortar shell landed right in the middle of the line of people. And it was complete carnage. And he ran out of his apartment to help the wounded. And he said he was feeling so anguished about how what to do about this, this insanity of bombing civilians. He wasn't a politician, and he wasn't a soldier, and all he had was his cello and his music. So the next day, May 28th, he dressed in his black tails and his starched white shirt with a bow tie and took his cello into the crater left by the mortar shell and sat on a chair that had been scorched by the fire, and he played. The piece he chose to play was Adagio in G minor by Albinoni. The story about that piece is that it was written from a fragment of paper recovered, discovered from Dresden after it was firebombed. The basso continuo was there, the theme was there, and the person who found it finished the piece and attributed it to Albinoni. And because of the history of that piece, that's the one he chose to play in the crater. Day after day, he played his cello, because if you're a cellist at that level, you play your cello every day anyway. And he chose different spots, different bombed-out buildings. He chose to play for free at funerals. Funerals were a favorite target of snipers and mortar fire. He was extremely brave. There's a novel about him that said he went every day for 22 days to play in this same mortar hole. And he said in an interview, "What? I'm not that stupid. I varied my schedule, of course, because there are snipers out there and I didn't want to get shot. So he was smart and brave and played in various places at various times. And the word of what he was doing began to come out and reporters would interview him. And one reporter questioned whether he was crazy to play his cello outside in the midst of a war zone. And he said, you ask me, am I crazy for playing the cello? Why do you not ask if they are not crazy for shelling Sarajevo? He was faced with the choice of life and death in big flaming letters, literally. 
And he chose life. He chose to use his life and to have the attitude of, I have a life, I have a gift, I have an instrument, and I'm going to put myself right in the middle of this in order to give people a way of saying, what are they doing? He's a hero for his courage. And we're not being shelled here, but we still face the choices between life and death. I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Marsha. She's not really a dear friend. We talk now and then. She's dying. Um, I met her over the, over the phone in 2006. I had used one of her poems for a church newsletter. This is the poem I used. She's quite a poet. It's called Fearing Paris. Suppose that what you fear could be trapped and held in Paris. Then you'd have the courage to go everywhere in the world, all the directions of the compass open to you, except the degrees east or west of true north that lead to Paris. Still, you wouldn't dare put your toes smack dab on the city limit line. You're not really willing to stand on a mountainside miles away and watch the Paris lights come up at night. Just to be on the safe side, you decide to stay completely out of France. But then danger seems too close even to those boundaries, and you feel the timid part of you covering the whole globe again. You need the kind of friend who learns your secret and says, See Paris first. About a month after the newsletter was put up on the internet, I got a package from California. In it was a book of this woman's poems and a letter which said, I was ego surfing the net the other day, and I saw that you had used one of my poems in the newsletter, and um, I sent her a thank you note along with one of my books, and I didn't hear from her for a long time, and I had this little worry that sending my book may have seemed like a smart aleck thing to do. And maybe I should have just appreciated her work and not said, hey, I'm a writer too. So I decided I'd call her. I got the answering machine. And I was in the middle of saying, Marsha, hi, this is Meg Barnhouse calling. When I heard the receiver lifted and this person going, We started talking. I was telling her how much I enjoyed her poems. And she said, I can send you everything if you want for free. It's just that... What? I said. She said, some of them are kind of, what? I said, hmm, spicy, she said. (laughs) Since my conversion, it really heated up my marriage. I said, conversion to what? Oh, I hesitate to say, she said, because you might think it's so weird, and I'm not like that. I mean, it's Roman Catholicism, but, you know, um, (laughs) some religious people are just awful. I said, it didn't sound weird to me. I knew Catholics who were very nice (laughs) and um, not awful at all. How did that heat up your marriage? (laughs) She said, well, since I got this new dimension to myself, my husband seems to like me even better. Her laugh was the kind of laugh that started low and went high, kind of like a waterfall in reverse. 
She said she and her husband had been married 37 years, and at night she had a dream about him that they were making out in a parking lot, scandalizing the passersby. She was a thoughtful person and a body person, and she was having fun. And she mentioned in passing that she was sick, and I said, I'm sorry you're sick. I hope you feel better soon. And she said, I'm not going to feel better. I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, well, my kidneys have shut down and my liver is shutting down and I'm dying. She said, they don't know when I'm going to die. She said she had hospice in and they stayed for six months and then left. She said she's praying all the time now not to be healed, except when the pain gets too bad, then she prays to die. When she's appreciating, she says, the pain almost goes away. She said, I'm not feeling pain right now while I'm talking to you, so I must be appreciating a lot. She said, love is pleasure. I feel pleasure in my love for God. And if somebody says they love someone who never gives them pleasure of any kind, it's a lie. I said, yeah, that's like some people saying they love a God they're really scared of. I tell people believing in a God who doesn't believe in you is a bad idea. She says, yes, or even like you. She said for her, that's what her religion is about, loving Jesus and being loved by him. And I said, yeah, that was it for me too, only I would call it the spirit. She said, same thing. I said, yeah. She said, I asked to be shown heaven every day, and I've seen it a lot. It's different every day. Yesterday, she said, heaven was a white Rolls Royce. And I was sitting inside. You know, I've never been inside a Rolls, but I could smell the leather. Our Unitarian forebear, Henry David Thoreau, wrote, When it is time to die, let us not discover that we never lived. Marcia is very sick, but alive. She's still alive. This is many years later. She has a giant Oldsmobile that she drives to the store, and she only ever drives 25 miles an hour just in case she has a heart attack. She doesn't want to hurt anybody. But you don't even have to be actively dying to see this choice between life and death set out before you. You have little subtle choices between life and death all the time. Where should I put my focus? Should I focus on the stuff that's going wrong? Should I devolve into a grumbly, cranky mess? This is a question I ask myself almost every day. Usually the answer is, yes, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so you could instead focus on things that are going well. When words are coming out of your mouth, you could ask yourself, are these words going to poke somebody and make them feel crappy, or are these words going to make somebody feel better? Are these death words or life words? Are they going to hurt or help? Are you going to have a life where you're scared of everything or a life where you're courageous? Where you do like Mr. Smelovic and say, I have a life, I'm going to use it for something. We become soulful people here. That's what we're here for. We're here to become spirited people. We're here to become people who choose life in the small ways, in our focus and our habits of attention, in our words that come out of our mouth, in our deeds and actions. We could just wonder to ourselves, 
almost on a moment-to-moment basis, what would this moment be like if I were to choose life? You'll find that your choices become clear. We're practicing to live more peaceful and joyous lives. And we're also practicing to live well and eventually to die well. It's going to happen to us. It's not an if. It happens to 100% of us. You know that. But we don't ever really know that. And we don't want to practice dying well. Um, But I have to say, one of the ways of choosing life is to be easy to help. A lot of us are helping people, but it's hard to be helped. But I want to say that when you are hard to help, you are really a pain when you get older. Know what I mean? So, in the little um, lessons that we get about living in a physical body, in between times when we're temporarily able-bodied, it is good to learn how to be helped. Mary Oliver captures this sentiment in a poem. No surprise there. She's a favorite. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn... When death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, toward silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So my beloveds, like Vedran Smelovic, like Marsha Truman Cooper, like all of our friends who keep their light burning bravely, let us be lions of courage precious to the earth. This doesn't mean you have to be frantically living every moment as if it were your last. That is just exhausting. This just means that you are open-hearted and courageous. Everything is a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Life is unstoppable, and it will go on, and it is of benefit to us to practice visualizing it going on after we are not going on anymore. But we are part of it now and forever. Please say with me the words by which we uh, extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again.